0: And now for something completely different. It's a rich world. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal, the full story, real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors.
1: And good morning and welcome to the Thursday edition of The Real Investment Show, of course. Uh, Today is uh, the day, second best day of the week, day before Friday, of course. Uh, It's also inflation day. Uh, So today, we're going to be getting that inflation print, comes out at 7.30 this morning, of course. This is what markets are all kind of anticipating right now as to, well, what's that number going to be? I mean, we're, we're now watching inflation like we've never watched it before. Now, it's like every month, it's like, oh my God, what's the print? The print. What's the print of inflation? Well, it's going to, you know, it's expected to be about 7.3% on an annualized basis. There is some expectation that actually could come weaker than that number. In our daily market commentary, which is up on our website now, uh, the Fed, uh, Fed member, uh, Bostick, Rafael Bostic, came out yesterday, implied kind of the same thing. And this is something that we've talked about here for a while, is that inflation as we measure it is likely peaking. And and I wanna be clear about that because this is an important thing that we're gonna be dealing with now for the rest of this year and really potentially for a while. Inflation will come down. And that's just a function of how we measure inflation because we measure it on a year over year basis. So today we'll get a monthly print, right? So we'll see inflation is up, I'm just picking a number, 0.3 and last month was 0.4. Well, inflation's still going up, but the rate of change on a month-over-month basis is starting to come down because it's just not rising as fast. So, let me put this into an easy kind of way to to understand this. Gas prices, we all deal with gas prices every day, right? So, we go to the gas pump, we fill up tanks. I went and filled up my truck the other day and it was 3.34 a gallon, right? So, that's, you know, that's that's the number. Well, so when I filled up that price is obviously higher than it was a year ago. So that's why we have inflation. Now, a year from now, if the price of gasoline is 334, the rate of inflation is zero, right? The price hasn't gone up. Now, it's still expensive. It's still costing me a lot more than it cost me when President Trump was in office, as an example, right? Almost twice as much, right? I'm paying almost twice as much for gas as I was during the last administration. However the rate of change of that inflation won't change. So here's the important part about this when it comes to economic growth. We measure economic growth by the amount of consumption that we do in the economy. So just because inflation becomes disinflationary, the rate of inflation comes down, it doesn't mean that prices have actually come down. Prices can just stay elevated and we will get disinflation, but consumers don't necessarily have any more money to spend they're spending more money at the pump to buy gasoline they're spending more money on food prices so more of the stuff that eats up their daily disposable income is still there so uh, even though wages are coming up wages haven't come up as fast as inflation as as price increases have so I don't have, and Americans don't have, as much discretionary income to go buy other stuff. And this is why we're starting to see credit card debt go up. We're starting to see more p- the, the, the amount of credit card debt rise because consumers are having to revert back now that they don't have these $1,400 checks, $900 checks, uh, extended unemployment benefits, uh, child tax credits, all that, st- all that money that we were injecting into the economy allowed people to pay off some credit not use their credit card because they had some extra money coming in every month. Well, now that's going away. So now they're having to go back to their credit cards to help make ends meet. And this is going to be one of the impacts that we talk about. First quarter GDP growth right now, estimated by the Atlanta Fed on their real-time tracker, uh, was 0.1%. Now, that that number came up because of the employment report that we had uh, for January. That number came up, but we're still sub-1% growth for the first quarter of 2022. So economic growth is already slowing, not surprising, because of all this extra liquidity coming out of the markets. But again, when we start talking about inflation, the rate of inflation can come down and will come down. We will see a disinflationary bent to a lot of these numbers just because of the rate of change on a year-over-year basis. But that doesn't mean that prices have gotten any cheaper. <laughs> so, that's the that's the kind of the 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 interesting takeaway from all of this, and that's of course is going to start to weigh on corporate profit margins. That's we're already starting to see corporate profit margins begin to contract, something we talked about last year. We'll see earnings for corporations begin to guide down here. And and again, earnings expectations for stocks are still very high here, but over the course of the next several months, we'll start to see those earnings estimates being tailored back as the reality of slower economic growth is really starting to set into the economy. Now yesterday, we had a nice rally in the markets, particularly in tech stocks. Now tech stocks do better in a disinflationary environment than, than uh, other inflationary uh, type companies, right? So energy. Uh, was weak yesterday, technology was strong yesterday because of this idea of a disinflation-type bet. And right after Rafael Bostic talked about weaker inflation, uh, we really saw kind of a surge in the markets. So we had a nice open yesterday, rallied up to a high. We closed up over 1% yesterday. Um, Unfortunately, while we did get back above that 20-day moving average kind of resistance level we've been fighting with for the last couple of weeks, um, we're actually still below the 50-day, and really just where we were, last week so we haven't gone anywhere over the last week this morning we'll see what markets say now if we do get this more kind of disinflationary bias in the numbers this morning we could see a follow-through rally again if markets can get above this 50-day moving average that does give us a shot back at all-time highs so that would certainly be encouraging for the bulls at this point But again, we've got to get above that resistance level. Markets are getting overbought here in the short term. So, you know, kind of that gas in the tank we've talked about before, that deep oversold condition we had back in January. We've used all that gas up in the tank. So there's kind of running on fumes uh, at this point, running on empty, as Jackson Brown would say. (laughs) So, um, But there is a good shot here. If the inflationary print comes in weaker than expected, could see some follow through here with the markets starting to see more and more stocks now moving above their 200-day moving average. That's actually a very bullish indicator for the markets. So as we begin to move here over the next, you know, next couple of weeks, we could see a push higher here heading into the Fed meeting if the, if the idea starts to manifest itself that the Fed may begin to back off some of their more hawkish stance on hiking rates, being aggressive. If we do see some of this kind of more talk from, you know, people like Rafael Bostic talking about, well, we're going to have maybe a little bit less inflation than we thought. Inflation seems to be kind of peaking here. That's kind of early talk. We might see the Fed back off the gas a bit. That would help give uh, markets a lift. Now. Again, don't mistake what I'm saying here. We're still moving into a tightening environment. It doesn't look like at this point that the Fed is going to back off raising rates and tapering their balance sheet. That's still going to weigh on stocks as we get further into the year. Doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have a crash in the markets, but it does suggest that returns may be a lot more muted than we saw last year. So. This is, as, as a lot of things to consider here, and I know there's a lot of a lot of data points that we're talking about, economic growth, inflation, earnings, but this is all gonna kind of start to gel as we start to head towards that March meeting. And once we start to see what the Fed is actually going to kind of lay out as a game plan of how fast they're gonna taper their balance sheet, what type of, aggress- you know, how aggressive are they gonna be, about hiking rates. That's going to give us a much better idea about how to navigate the markets this year. More importantly, where to allocate money to. And something that we'll talk about this morning with Michael Leibowitz, he'll be joining me right after the break, is this idea of buying value because you've got to be careful here. We've been reviewing quite a few portfolios, not as much value in value as you think there is. And we'll talk about that when we come back from the break. I'm Real Science Roberts for this morning's edition of The Real Investment Show. Get by the website realinvestmentadvice.com. Be right back.
0: Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Are
2: you leaving thousands in Social Security money on the table? Prepare to properly claim your Social Security at our next virtual Lunch and Learn. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Your claiming choices now can affect your loved ones later. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next RIA Advisors Virtual Lunch and Learn. Thursday, February 10th at noon. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com, Investment Advice.com. Real Investment
0: Advice.com. The Real Investment Show.
1: And good morning. Welcome to the show. And of course, uh, Thursday, as I said earlier, and uh, getting the second best day of the week underway. Mike Leewich joining me this morning to, uh, to talk a little bit about why there's no value in value, or at least you've got to be very careful about it and the implications of that for the market. But before we get there, I just wanted to you know, kind of uh, finish up our conversation on inflation here and let Mike weigh in as well, because he's the inflationista in the group. Um, <laughs> Mike, good morning. How are you?
3: Good good inflationista I like it my <laughs> wife will be so proud of me
1: <laughs> I'm gonna get well that's the next t-shirt you're gonna get right. <laughs> hashtag inflationista
3: uh, Brent,
1: you got my address oh yeah <laughs> do. Oh, oh yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> we got on speed dial
1: so all right Mike uh, just uh you know you kind of heard what we're talking about a little bit uh at the open here Raphael Bostic talking about maybe a little bit weaker print and in inflation day does and again you know the, the, I think we have to be very clear about this and this is you know this has been the the argument over inflation for the last two decades, really, when um, Ben Bernanke was talking about, well, inflation's coming down and, and great and Alan Greenspan as well. Of course, one of the the, the great comments was that, you know, well, the price of an Apple iPad is coming down. And, and the reporter at the time said, yeah, but you can't eat an iPad. <laughs> so, you know, there, the, there's a there's always been a big differential between what the government reports as inflation and what the average American experiences as inflation and what we're talking about here is government inflation. Raphael Bostic talking about, hey, we could see, we could potentially see maybe a little weaker print today, um, but that doesn't mean that prices got cheaper.
3: Right, right, right. There's a lot of math there, but you know what? You can't measure inflation. I can measure my inflation. Mm-hmm. I could go through my, you know, go through my credit card statements, my bank statements, and look at every transaction and see what it would have cost a year prior. Mm-hmm. But my, my, my payments and your payments are very different. Right. Not only are we buying different things, you live in Texas, I live in Maryland, right? The, the guy across the street from me is very different, right? He, he, they do different things than we mm-hmm. do. He spends money in different things. So the whole idea of calculating one aggregate inflation number is kind of ridiculous, right? The, what the number does do, however, is give you a trend, right? Right. We know inflation is running hot, right? Whether it's 7% or 10% for me and 4% for you, we both know that our inflation numbers have gone up, unless we've bought nothing for the last year, right? Um, So that's point number one. The, The other thing to think about with the Fed, when you talk about the Fed and inflation, is context. For the last 10 years prior to the pandemic, the Fed has been begging for more inflation, every you go back and look at almost every fed statement mm-hmm. and it's like we just want a little more inflation we want to get up to two percent and it's so funny because it was what about a year ago the fed adapted a new inflation targeting system mm-hmm. so prior to about a year ago they said we want our objective is two percent inflation a year that's what we want right. right and that's what we're going to try to achieve and we'll let it and run
1: hot were- and we'll let it run hot for a while that
3: was what they said we're gonna average two percent over multiple years right so you know when they did this about a year ago they said okay well we ran one seven one six one seven two percent so our average for four years has been one seven so we can run three percent for a year and our average over those four or five years would be two (laughs) percent surprise (laughs) surprise now inflation (laughs) is running you know even over five year periods probably three or four percent right um And all of a sudden they want to get rid of inflation. Right. They had no control. They 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 kind of admitted, Lance, that they Mm. had no control to push up inflation. Right. They were begging for just a few tenths more inflation and they couldn't do it. Right. We went through periods where they were easing aggressively. We went through periods where they were tightening policy. And through all those machinations, they couldn't get inflation to where they wanted to be. Right. But now, t- now, now we're to believe that that they they're, they're a puppet <laughs> over the inflationista, and they can yeah move it as they please.
1: Yeah. No. This the hubris of the Fed is is pretty pretty wild. But you know, it didn't it, it didn't take a, a rocket science to figure out that if you inject one point nine trillion, two trillion dollars, you know, another nine hundred you know trillion, nine hundred billion, you know, whatever. In just policy after policy where you're sending checks to households, it it wasn't rocket science that you were going to get a spike in inflation. That that demand, and particularly at a time that you had shut down the economy, people weren't working, we weren't producing. So just basic economics, the Fed should have said, hey, if we do this, we're going to get a sharp spike in inflation. So they should have been hiking rates last year and saying look we're about to get a big surge in temporary inflation because we shut down the economy we've got all this liquidity going to households we're going to hike rates here just to try to counterbalance that but you know they just kept their foot on the gas for 2020 2021 zero rates 120 billion a month in qe and now they're all sitting back going oh my gosh now what do we do about it and so now we're going to reverse all this policy just at the time that all that liquidity surge is coming out of the markets and supply is coming back online. If you take a look at recent manufacturing reports, et cetera, inventory builds are coming up. So you're about to have a reversal of supply and demand and get a bigger disinflationary push in the economy. Now the Fed's going to be back on their heels going, OK, now, uh, hold on a second. Now we can't raise rates because now we've got disinflation. So, I mean, right. it's, you know, I think they've got themselves in a pretty tough spot here um, trying to, to manipulate inflation uh, without destroying the economy in the same process.
3: And look, Lance. Let's let's just say we're wrong on inflation. Mm-hmm. Inflation's, you yeah, know, we're here a year from now, and inflation's running eight percent. Right. The Fed's really got trouble then, right? Because then they're aggressively aggressively tightening policy, raising rates, cutting QE. And what if they find out that they don't really have much of an effect on inflation? Right. Right. What if inflation is more psychological at this point? It, it, People are so scared of paying more tomorrow than today, they buy everything today. We're still seeing it with toilet yeah. paper. <laughs> With some basic staples. People are still hoarding this stuff. Yeah.
1: Well, no, it's true until you get to the point that you hike rate's enough to, you know... Right, basically, kill the economy. Yeah, and and that's that's really what this will come down to is that, as always, and this, the, the Fed has a long history of this, is they'll hike rates until they break something in the economy. And the question is, right. is it 1%? Is it 1.5%? You know, where is that number? Well, we don't know, but it's, it's not very far away from where we are.
3: Right, but we do know that that number is less than it was in 2019. right? And that number in 2019 is less than it was in 2014. Mm-hmm. And that number was less than it was in 2006. right? right? It's been a declining uh, threshold, so to speak, where higher rates, because there's more debt to GDP. It's not that there's more debt. It's that there's more debt to GDP. Mm-hmm. So if you think about it from your own personal balance sheet, there's more debt and the same amount of income. And that ratio has been rising of debt to income, meaning that you can't afford, you can't afford the debt. The only way to afford it is with lower interest rates. And that's been basically the MO for this country for 20, 30 years. <laughs> yep. But but interest rates have gotten so low that the benefit is negligible of zero rates, right? Right. We've seen rates down here before. We've seen mortgage rates, you know, below 3 percent. So, you know... You know, looking forward, you have to get mortgage rates, what, to one and a half percent, one percent, to force people to refi and to lower their cost of debt. At the same time, if you bring mortgage rates up to four or five percent, you do a lot of damage to the housing market, right? Mm -hmm. If you bring auto loans up to four or five percent, cars aren't going to sell as much. And look, at the end of the day, the Treasury is sitting on over 30 trillion of debt which they're refinancing refinancing constantly. Now a big chunk of it doesn't refinance this year or next year. But every new you know all the new debt plus whatever is maturing gets refinanced at say 4 or 5%, that interest expense over a couple of years starts rising rapidly and making your debt problem even worse.
1: Yeah. Um, you know it's interesting too uh, you know governments are trying to figure out other ways to deal with the inflationary pressures. I thought it was interesting that the Bank of England has asked the public not to ask for pay raises to help quell inflation, right? Because wages are a big inflationary push, right? So if people have to pay more in wages, they've got to raise prices to compensate for higher wages. And I thought it was interesting. The Bank of England's solution to solving the inflation was to ask people who have basically been struggling now for the last two years, don't ask for a pay raise.
3: But but did you see what – so Biden is apparently thinking about getting rid of the federal excise tax on on gasoline. Right. Which is kind of funny. If you kind of really think about it, right, that that tax has been there and it just pays, you know, it helps pay, you know, pay for the, you know, get it eliminates some of the deficits. So what regardless of whether whatever you think of that tax, Mm -hmm. he's basically thinking about getting rid of a tax, meaning that they're going to subsidize. Right. Right. Everyone to buy oil. Right. It's just another subsidization subsidization easy for me to say uh, uh, <laughs> well
1: but if you uh, reduce his goal is though if you reduce the, if you take away the excise tax the gas the price of gallon the price per gallon <laughs> of gasoline will go down at the pump and that's what's really impacting it, it look inflation is killing his poll ratings right now going into the election you got midterms right. coming up very shortly is is 39 approval right now right. that's not healthy this this is a bad, you know, again, kind of a short-sighted solution to trying to bring down gas prices at the pump. That excise tax is what goes to a lot of other spending that we do. And to your point, right. is going to cut the amount of revenue the government has coming in at a time when his, they don't have that <laughs> enough revenue goal to cover is spending. Political.
3: Right. right. His goal is political. And now they're going to be lacking that revenue. They're going to have to borrow more.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, look, putting
3: even more dependency on interest rates.
1: Exactly, but but again, this is and this is the overall problem. We've talked about this before, but it takes right now more than hundred percent of tax revenues just to cover mandatory spending and interest on the debt. So right. everything that we spend, uh, you know, it's interesting. There was a kind of a big hoopla on, on Capitol Hill is like, okay, we've got some. We're working bipartisan here. We've got some bipartisan legislation coming down the pipeline. Great, this is your job to raise the debt ceiling again, right? Cuz we have another debt ceiling of potential again. government shutdown coming up next month. So, they've got to raise the debt ceiling again uh to do this, you know, don't worry about passing a budget. We haven't done that since Obama was in office. Uh, but uh, but you know, let's just keep these continuing resolutions going and keep our spending out of control. You know, that's going to really solve our debt problem long term. All right, quick All break. Right. We're going to come back Uh, Like I said, um, value, Uh, value has underperformed growth for one of the longest periods on record in the financial markets. The problem is that there's no value in value. And we'll talk about that when we come back from the break and how to navigate that trick. Don't go away.
0: Investment Advice Blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at RealInvestmentAdvice.com. Are you leaving
2: thousands in Social Security money on the table? Prepare to properly claim your Social Security at our next virtual lunch and learn. What Boomers need to know about Social Security. Your claiming choices now can affect your loved ones later. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next RIA Advisors virtual lunch and learn, Thursday, February 10th at noon. What boom- Boomers need to know about social security. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com, realinvestmentadvice.com.
0: You're listening to the Real Investment Show.
1: I want to start out this segment we're going to be talking about the lack of value and value. This is something that uh, Mike wrote an article about yesterday. It's on our website and something that has been a real challenge, you know, in portfolio management this year is trying to balance a portfolio between growth and value value has underperformed growth. Now for one of the largest stretches on, on record. In fact, the value growth ratio is at one of the lowest levels ever on record as well. The problem though is that when we take a look at value, companies like Hershey's, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Procter and Gamble, these stocks that are traditionally considered a value really aren't a value. I want to read to you something that uh, we talked about this on the show before, but price to sales. This is one of the measures that you know kind of is a, a great way to look at a company value-wise because... It's, it's difficult to manipulate what happens at the top end of the income statement. So sales is what happens at the top, and you have all your expenses, all your accounting manipulations and gimmicks and everything else that goes on, uh, and then you get your earnings per share at the bottom, and that is not always a great representation of what's actually going on in the company. But look at sales. Sales tells you a lot. Scott McNeely was the CEO of Sun Micro back in 2000, and, he, and he, he said this to a press conference at the time. It was actually a Bloomberg interview. He says, at 10 times revenue, right, so, 10 times, so price of sales, 10x. At 10 times sales, to give you a 10-year payback, I must pay you 100% of revenues or sales for 10 straight years as dividends. That assumes I can get that by shareholders. It also assumes I have zero cost of goods sold, which is very hard to do with a computer company. That assumes that zero expenses, which is hard with 39,000 employees. That assumes I pay no taxes, which is very hard. And that expects you pay no taxes on your dividends, which is kind of illegal. And that assumes with zero R&D for the next 10 years, I can maintain the current revenue run rate. Now, having done that, would any of you like to buy my stock at 10 times price to sales? Now, mind you, this was in 1999. Two years later, Sun Micro was on the verge of bankruptcy. The point about this is is that value is very important. So at 10 times price to sales, would you like to buy Sun Micro? Well, looking back in history, obviously not. But take a look at Hershey's, Coca-Cola. They're trading at five, six, seven times price-to-sales now, and these are companies that are very slow growers in terms of revenue and earnings. So at two times price, just to give you some context to start with, okay? At two times price-to-sales, just two, a company has to grow their revenue at 20% every year. They have to have a 20% sales growth every year just to maintain a price-to-sales ratio of two. So at five, six, seven times price-to-sales, how fast does a company have to grow their their revenue to maintain their current valuation? This is is really kind of the point that Mike got to yesterday. So, Mike, you know, when we start taking a look at these value stocks, you know, what's causing this problem? I mean, it, it would seem like value... And this, especially over the last year, where we saw you know stocks like Peloton that you know were just exploding in value over that last couple of years, that you know there would there would be a lot of value in some of these companies, but it's not. What's what's causing that?
3: I think the the one of the biggest causes of there not being value in value is this wave of passive investing. So when we passive invest, we're buying indes, indexes, right? And whether that index is a value index or the S&P index or a growth index or there's a million of them, you're buying every underlying stock, regardless of whether it has a price to sales of one or 10. You are buying a share of every stock. So when you buy the S&P, you're buying Procter Gamble, you're buying Hershey's, you're buying all those companies Lance mentioned. Right. Regardless, there is no discerning between valuations. So every time you can kind of think of this as the investing population as active investors and passive investors. Right. And what we've seen over the course of the last um, 10 years Mm -hmm. is that there's a much reduced level number of active investors and much more passive investors. And that has essentially broken the valuation system. What used to happen is when a value stock was too valuable, meaning its price-to-earnings, price-to-sales, whatever metrics you use was too low, active investors would get in there and buy it. They would push the valuation up to a normal range or above normal, at which point they would sell. Mm-hmm. And they, they would essentially regulate valuations to some degree. Now you have people that are just throwing a dart at a dartboard and buying everything on that dartboard. Right. And the purpose... This article is kind of a two-story article. I should have broken it into two stories. But the bottom line is the passive versus active side of the story and why, you know, we highlight Procter Gamble, why a company like Procter Gamble can trade at a P.E. of close to 30, despite having much slower earnings and revenue growth than the S&P, which trades at, what's its current P.E., 23, 24, Mm -hmm. 22, whatever it is. Uh, Why is, right, why would you value more for Procter Gamble than the market? right when it's growing at a slower rate than a market and it's look it's procter gamble they don't have the next ipad coming they don't have the next the next big thing coming we know what procter gamble is for better or worse right yeah, toilet they paper. have <laughs> uh, they, i mean, they have a million products they're great products <laughs> great company but it is what it is right yeah and even if they get a new brand of toilet paper it is so small compared to their book of business yeah but people right? are going to hoard it though <laughs> Oh, Of course. (laughs) Um, So the purpose, you know, the first part, you know, the second part of the article is kind of talk about this passive and how value is is almost meaningless now because of what passive funds and passive strategies have done to the market. And, you know, Procter Gamble, again, trades at a P of 29. We believe it's overvalued versus historical valuation ratios by nearly 50 percent. Right. We looked at it on a price of sales basis, similar thing. We looked at what Zacks had to say about it. I think they said it was 40% overvalued. Mm-hmm. The problem is, and we own Procter Gamble, right? We uh, we have a 2% stake in it in our portfolios. Mm-hmm. It is part of the S&P 500. It is going up and passive investors are ruling the day. So, so even us as discerning what we, uh, are we still value investors, Lance? We like to think we are but this isn't a value investing market
1: yeah exactly right?
3: but uh, you've seen
1: yeah but there's another problem here too that that you know outside of the passive indexing there are people that buy individual stocks like mm-hmm. procter and gamble like coke like mcdonald's mm-hmm. and i think that and the other part of that story is the fed which you know by the fed keeping interest rates at zero artificially for over a decade now um, flooding markets with liquidity, suppressing you know, interest rates on all types of fixed income instruments to levels where you can't you – know, if, I, if I go buy a 10-year treasury, I can't keep up with the rate of inflation. There used to be a time I could buy treasuries and make 5 or 6% pre-2008 um, on my money. I could just buy a 10-year treasury, and I could make a decent return on my money. But you know, the Fed has now forced all these people to go chase yield. And, you know, you go into the markets and you're trying to find a stock that's paying a one and a half or a two percent yield and you're having to way overpay for the value of that company just to try to get some form of yield on your money. And this is and and that yield chase has been one of the other big factors, I think, in driving the valuations of these value, you know, what we traditionally call a value company you know to such overvalued levels. And I think that's really kind of the key definition here, Mike. Also is that we're talking about companies that you know are typically deemed to be value companies, right? So if we look right. at the markets and we break it into two halves, we say okay, Procter and Gamble that's a value stock and Apple is a growth stock. And we throw them into buckets. It doesn't mean that the S&P is sitting there going, okay, Procter and Gamble is undervalued, so now it's a it's in the value bucket. And if you even look at value funds, like value-based ETFs or value-based uh, mutual funds, those valuations are very high.
3: Well, that's that's what we did. Yeah. We, we looked at a large Vanguard fund, which is probably in a lot of your 401k plans or some variation of it, whether it's Vanguard or Fidelity or whoever it may be. And Procter Gamble, of course, is in the top, you know, one of the top holdings of mm-hmm. that. So we looked at the top 10 holdings. And all we did was we looked at uh, four valuations and we said, how do they compare versus the S&P? And how do they compare against the lowest decile of the S&P 500? So we took those 50 or so stocks that have the lowest PEs, the lowest price to book, the lowest price to sales, lowest price to forward earnings, and said, how does it compare? Only one of the 10 had one of those four metrics that was in the lowest decile. That was Berkshire Hathaway. And a lot of them, a good chunk of them, weren't even at the median of the S&P 500. So, look, these may be value companies. They're great companies. If you look at this list, it's Berkshire Hathaway, which I would actually say is a value stock. Mm -hmm. But it's Exxon, it's Procter Gamble, it's J&J, Pfizer, Abbott, uh, Bank America, JP Morgan, a couple others. Exxon, I think, Mm -hmm. was in there. Um, Value companies, but they're not value stocks. And there's a huge difference there, Lance.
1: And I think this is and there's an important message here for investors that that I think is critical is that if and when we get into another market downturn, typically you could go into value and get and kind of be shielded from the downturn a bit because those were undervalued companies. Money would tend to rotate into those undervalued companies during the middle of a bear market. And that would give you some protection doesn't necessarily mean your portfolio would go up in value but it may not go down as much that may not be the case in the next spare market particularly once we if we do trigger the point people start to liquidate in mass these passive etf funds there may not be a lot of places to hide in the markets outside of actual fixed income um, within the equity classes itself and we'll t- we'll touch on that when we come back from the break um about potentially what causes the next downturn and what it might mean for investors don't go away
0: Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Are
2: you leaving thousands in Social Security money on the table? Prepare to properly claim your Social Security at our next virtual Lunch & Learn. What boomers need to know about Social Security. Your claiming choices now can affect your loved ones later. Join Richard Rosso and Danny Ratliff for our next RIA Advisors Virtual Lunch & Learn. Thursday, February 10th at noon. What boomers need to know About Social Security. Register now at Real Investment Advice.com. Real Investment
0: Advice.com. The Real Investment Show. And
1: welcome back to the show this morning. It is, of course, uh, 647 as we get ready to wrap the Thursday edition of the Real Investment Show up for you. Don't forget today, if you have not signed up yet, we have a virtual event at noon today. It is what baby boomers need to know about Social Security. Uh, It's with Danny uh, Ratliff and Richard Rosso talking about everything you need to know about Social Security, how to claim, when to claim, what to claim. Making a mistake on your Social Security can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars, literally, in benefits and cost you more in taxes, a whole variety of other issues. And they're going to cover all that with you. It, it's absolutely free, of course. Uh, just go to our website. and There's a big banner right on the front page. Just click there to register. It's at noon today. So pack your lunch and uh, come online and hang out. There's, seating is limited. <laughs> it's an online event. So um Sign up now. But but no masks required. But no mask required yeah. unless you're watching just, with someone. Yes, then, then wear your mask, I'm sure. Or you're <laughs> robbing someone, one of the two. So anyway, but uh, go online uh, now, realinvestmentadvice.com, and click on the big banner there. Again, that's at noon today. Uh, love to have you there. So And again, they're going to talk about everything you need to know about Social Security. So... Um, Just for the break, talked about this issue that during the next downturn in the markets, when it occurs, and this will will eventually happen at some point now, whether it's this, you know, there's a lot of talk right now from a variety of different corners of the kind of the financial media is like, oh, we're about to have the biggest crash ever. And, you know, uh, Robert Kiyosaki, you know, the biggest bear market ever is coming maybe maybe not who knows we'll navigate that when we get there but there's a lot of concern over it with the fed hiking rates and you know potentially tapering their balance sheet that is typically you know turned into at least decent market routes if done nonetheless and as we talked about before the break a lot of people are maybe hiding in value thinking they've got some relative safety there but that may not be the case and this is going to be kind of an important point in terms of managing risk in a portfolio some of the traditional places to shield your portfolio against a market decline may not provide the that protective benefit that you may be expecting. Mike, your thoughts?
3: Yeah, I, I think what investors are going to have to look at is how well is the company represented in passive funds and ETFs and mutual funds. The problem being, and and you know we. You know, a week ago or so, maybe a few days ago, whatever it was, we sold in our sector model, we sold a little bit of a discretionary ETF. We still hold it, but we just we trimmed it down a little bit. Mm -hmm. When we sold that ETF, we effectively sold Amazon, which is about a quarter of the index. But we sold every single underlying stock in that index indirectly. Right. Right. So if you go to the bottom of that index, there is definitely a few value stocks in there. Large value stocks, but value stocks. Those got sold. Right now, you take a company uh, that that is not in these indexes. It's held by definition by active investors. Right, Mm -hmm. it's not in any passive funds. Only active investors hold it. So we take our ABC ticker company, our hypothetical company. It's got a PE of five, a price to sales of one, a PEG ratio that's very low. It's everything we want in a company. But a P, you know, it's 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 a great value. We're not selling that. It's like owning a great business at a very cheap price. We're active. We don't have to sell it. Mm-hmm. Right. We may be forced to make sales because we're losing money in other places. We may have to sell it, but we're not indiscriminately selling it. We're making a decision. We want to sell ABC because we need money because we don't think it's going to rise because of this and the other. When we when we and every other passive, we're not passive investor, but when every passive investor or anyone in passive products goes to sell, they're selling across the board. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem here. Now. Now, the flip side of that, Lance, is that investors are buying value in name only. Right. They're buying funds that have the word value in it. The the X, Y, Z value fund, the value ETF, the S&P large cap value fund. Right. They think it has value. And as we show in the article, there's not much value in the value fund. But right. If if the perception is that the market's going to be weak this year and and passive investors are not going to give up on passive investing, they're just going to, you know, take a more conservative approach, move from growth to value, move from tech to value, move from whatever it is to value. They're going to buy the word value. Right. Right. So some of these companies like Procter Gamble, like those, you know, like what's in that fund that I discussed earlier, could do well for a little while. However, if there's net passive selling, net selling in a market, so they may sell growth a lot more, but they're also selling value, then it's indiscriminately going through all those funds and selling, right? And that's, you know, that's kind of the the what I would call is the part two risk. If we're really, you know, if the market's really going to sell off for a year or two, and passive investing is going to lose its steam, and active investors will become more active, then what we're going to see is probably initially a rotation to value, value in name, not not the small, you know, the small companies, not many people have heard of, that are trading a PEs of four, PEs of six, single-digit PEs, and then and then. Then that's when those companies – and this is what we, exactly what we saw in 2000, right? Mm-hmm. Lance, you were talking about Sun Microsystems. Right. You were a moron if you didn't own Sun Microsystems in 1999, right? Right. That, that was the Apple, the Microsoft, the Tesla, the mm-hmm. – you know, you couldn't not own it, right? And the best thing you could have done for yourself was be the first one out the door but essentially not own it, Right. And and at the same time, you have these value stocks. And back then, passive investing isn't nearly what it is today. Value stocks did okay, 2000 to 2003, they eked out a gain over that period while the S&P was down, what, 50 percent and Nasdaq Mm -hmm. was down 80 plus percent. So, you know, depending on how this plays out, you know, if if you know, and the Fed's in play. And look, we may be going to new highs. Passive may become even more powerful. So all these passive sto- passive stocks underlying these passive indexes may continue to do great. We may just see a rotation within passive to value. So the, value st- the quote unquote value stocks may do great. Or we get a washout. And that's where true value uh, small caps, you know, stocks that aren't in the major indices mm-hmm. are very poorly represented. That's their turn to shine. And, you know, but this all depends on what environment we're going into. And there's nothing that says we're not going to hit new highs over and over again this year, just like last year. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing that says we can't drop 30, 40. You wrote a paper about the market dropping 50 percent, mm-hmm. right? So you, you just you can't just say, OK, I'm going into value and that's it, because value has been a loser. For the last 10 years
1: and look and and during and during a decline you know the 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 best place to be may be bonds you know right now the the sentence we talked about before sentiment on bonds is the most negative on record right now other than back in 2017 just before we got into the 2018 debacle um but you know we're we're you know we often talk about a lot about stocks, and this is all that the market focuses on, the media focuses on is like, you know, stocks, you know, growth to value. And again, during a declining market, you'll be losing money on both sides of leisure. ledger, maybe not as much in value, but you're still gonna be losing money. And you might actually be making money in bonds because that's where money will rotate to for ultimate safety. And it just that's depends right. on how bad, how, how big that decline actually is. And again, you know, I did, I wrote this paper on Monday talking about a 50% correction. I'm not we're not calling for a 50% correction in the markets that's not the point of the article the point of the article is the markets because of the Fed actions over the last two years have deviated the market so far from its long term growth trend going all the way back to 1900 that it would take a 50% correction just to retest that growth trend that wouldn't even be a bear market that would just be a correction with an ongoing bull market. And that's really just to show you how deviated these markets have become. And if you think you're safe, uh, and this is really the point that Mike's making, if you think you're safe trying to hide in value, if we get into a more protracted bear market, if we do get a reversion back to the, to the growth trend line, which always happens, ever since 1900, you regularly retest that, that exponential growth trend line. If you get a retest of that growth trend line, it's not going to matter what equity class you're in, you're going to get hammered. Bonds will do well, so you need to make sure you also have a an allocation towards fixed income in your portfolio as well, because that truly will shield you during a bigger decline.
3: Right, and Lance, you know we were talking about Procter Gamble earlier. Mm-hmm. For it to get back to its price to earnings where it traded from 2019 to 2012, and probably well before that or around that area, it would have to drop almost 40, 50 yeah. percent to be at fair value. Right. We're not saying it's on sale. We're not saying it's cheap just to get back to where it has been historically on what you're paying for earnings basis.
1: Right. And that's and that's that's a problem, though, across the entire market. And again, this is this is a function, really, honestly, at, at the end of the day, yes, it's a function of passive investing, but it's a function of also the Fed keeping interest rates too low for too long, putting too much liquidity into the markets, fueling these asset market increases that we've had then laying on top of that trillions of dollars worth of fiscal stimulus, uh, sorry, monetary stimulus on top of it. So, you know, you've just got, you know, we've just created this epic bubble in markets over the last two years that truly is unsustainable. The question is only now what cracks it. And and that's the thing that we never know, right? What's what's going to be the catalyst or the trigger that starts to bring markets back in line with some form of rational reality. And then, of course, how big is that correction actually going to be? Is it 10 percent? Probably not. Is it 20? Maybe getting into the ballpark. We don't know, but we'll have to figure that out. But it's at least something to be paying attention to, um, particularly if you have a lot of money invested in the markets. Is that there is risk, and we're not saying that the markets are going to crash tomorrow. We're not going to say we're not saying any of that. All we're trying to say is that there's there's a risk because of this kind of irrational exuberance that has developed in the markets over the last two years and investors are kind of looking at value and and saying oh well that's just that's that's a value stock it must be value you've got to really look beyond what just something is classified and look to see if you really actually do own value or not that wraps up the show for the day get by the website michael's article on value is on the website right now it's a really good piece talking about this value growth proposition. It's on the website now, realinvestmentadvice.com. Of course, send us your questions, comments, emails. Let us know what we can do for you. Always happy to help you out. don't forget, today at noon is our Social Security webinar talking all about what you need to know about Social Security to make sure you don't make mistakes claiming Social Security at the wrong time or doing it the wrong way. That's at noon today, (laughs) realinvestmentadvice.com.